Okay, I know Alan has prayed, but I'm going to pray again anyway. Oh, Lord Jesus, as you open the scriptures to those two, would you send your spirit and open the scriptures to us? We don't want to be those who are foolish and slow of heart to believe. We want to be those who see with Easter eyes. So speak to each one of us, I pray, and may we respond in your name. Amen. Amen. Endings matter. I'm sure many of us will have had the experience of going to see a film after we've read the book, or sometimes the other way around. Now, it can be fascinating to compare the two. We're interested in where the film director places the emphasis, how he fills out the characterization, what he does with the plot, and of course, what he or she decides to leave out. But as a viewer, our experience cannot be the same as for someone who has never read the book. You see, it's not possible to unknow the ending or the unexpected twist, if you like. And in some senses, we will watch the whole film in the light of what we know will happen. Now, something similar is happening here in Luke's vivid account of two disciples walking to Emmaus. And it'd be really helpful if you've still got it open, page 1061, or if you haven't, that you would find it. Now, at first glance, it looks like Luke just tells it how it happened. The two main characters are unknown disciples. We only learn the name of one, Cleopas, in verse 18, and we don't even know the gender of the other. And they head out of Jerusalem feeling sad and discouraged. At some stage, an apparent stranger starts walking alongside and engages them in conversation until they arrive at their destination. By now, it's getting dark, and all three go into a house. We don't know whose house, and they start sharing a meal. Now, in some unexplained way, this man seems to take over the meal, and when he offers the two some bread... Luke tells us, verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight, at which point they get up and immediately head straight back to Jerusalem where they have just come from. Now, told like that, as a narrative, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But Luke's version tells it in such a way as to emphasize the recognition, the surprise ending par excellence, the ending which changes everything which went before it, not just on the road itself, but also in the last three years of knowing Jesus. Well, let's, as it were, join the two on the road this morning, and as the camera focuses in and we get close-ups of Jesus, what do they tell us of him, and what response might they seek from us? So firstly, Jesus is one who draws alongside us. He draws alongside Now, my hunch tells me that these two just wanted to get out 
of Jerusalem. It was too full of painful memories. Memories of Jesus' crucifixion and now confusion, what has happened to his dead body. And why they were going to Emmaus isn't said, but what is clear is it was a shared experience. Uh, Verse 14, they're talking with each other, discussing 15, with each other, everything that's happened. And then in verse 17, it tells us they both have faces downcast. And in verse 19, they both tell the stranger about what has happened in Jerusalem. Now, when they describe recent events, it is as if they are opening up to a stranger. Since verse 17, he seems to know nothing about them. And then verse 18, he asks them to clarify what things. But from the way the story is written, we, the reader, learn that it is actually Jesus that they're telling these things to. Verse 15, Jesus himself came and walked along with them. But they were kept, literally their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. Now this is the after perspective. The two didn't know him at the time. But after the surprise ending, they realized who he was all along. But we know they were opening their hearts to Jesus, to the one they had trusted and followed and who had been so cruelly ripped from them. Now, it seems to me significant that Jesus pressed them to unburden themselves of the facts, even though they were clearly known to him, and also to share their feelings. Can we not sense, verse 21, their massive disappointment, but we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We'd hoped he was the Messiah, longed for by all the Jews and on which we, and whom we'd pinned our hopes. We can sense to their bewilderment as they start to tell him, verse 22, what's more, it's the third day. Some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb. They didn't find his body. They saw angels, but they didn't see him. These are two friends in the shock of bereavement. They are overwhelmed by what is going on in them and around them. And Jesus draws alongside and invites them to share it all with him. Now this had, of course, not been possible before. Just like a devoted wife could be the other way around, whose husband dies with no warning, she cannot share her grief with him. And so it was when Jesus died. And yet, the surprise ending makes this gloriously possible for them and, by extension, for us. Jesus is no longer dead. He is alive, restored to life. And so this morning, if you feel an insignificant nobody, he draws alongside you and invites you 
me, to share all of our sorrows, our confusion, whatever our experience of death or of loss of any kind. Share it with him and know that he hears our individual pain. So Jesus draws alongside. Then secondly, Jesus is the Christ who fulfills all scripture. Jesus is the Christ who fulfills all scripture. Now it sounds rather hard, doesn't it? Jesus telling them, accusing them, verse 25, of being foolish and slow of heart to believe. Now he is not telling them that they are stupid. Rather, that they are lacking in insight, and that's a matter more of the head, sorry, of the heart than of the head. A matter of the heart. In particular, Jesus draws attention to the fact they cannot grasp, look at verse 25, all that the prophets have spoken. Because if they had, they would have realized, verse 26, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. These things, that's shorthand for Jesus' death sentence, crucifixion, burial, all of which he now presents as some kind of necessary suffering for the Christ, Greek word for Messiah. Now, Luke does not tell us exactly which texts Jesus quoted. But he sums it up, verse 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Now, the emphasis here is on the word all. Note that it comes three times. All that the prophets have spoken, all the prophets, and all the scriptures. So the implication is it doesn't matter which individual prophecies we look at because all of them concern Jesus and Jesus fulfilled them all. Now obviously it would be fascinating at this point to digress and speculate on which Old Testament texts Jesus might have quoted. Though seven seven miles means they probably had a couple of hours, and I guess we haven't got that. (laughs) But I want instead to highlight how this revelation of the suffering Christ is a culmination, a climax, if you like, of what Jesus of Nazareth has been telling his followers all the way through Luke's gospel. From the moment Jesus is recognized by Peter as the Christ of God, Jesus starts to tell his followers two things. Firstly, that the Son of Man must suffer, be rejected by the chief priests, be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. And secondly, that everything written by the prophets about the Son of Man must be fulfilled. He tells them repeatedly, and repeatedly, we are told, 
they didn't understand. The meaning was hidden from them. If you glance back to verse 6, same chapter, even at the empty tomb, the angel reminds the women, remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered, crucified, the third day be raised. It made total sense for Jesus. Hence, his use of the words must be, but it made no sense at all to his followers. Until now, that is. Now, of course, to maintain the tension of the story, Luke does not actually give us the reaction of the two until later. Look at verse 32. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Now, interestingly... The word for opened the scriptures is exactly the same word used for, in verse 31, their eyes were opened. So the now alive but unrecognized Jesus is able to reveal, to open the truth of these things to them which they couldn't see before his death, no matter how many times he told them. The fact that it all came to pass exactly as Jesus had predicted, of course, vindicated him as a prophet, as well as all the prophets before him. But it also proved that he was the Christ Messiah. Prior to his death, If you look back in Luke, I commend it to you. Jesus of Nazareth cited prophecies saying it was the Son of Man who would suffer, die, and be raised. Look at verse 26. The resurrected Jesus says it is the Christ who had to suffer these things before entering his glory. And he's alive to prove it. Now, even after saying all that, I'm still left wondering about the use of these words, the Son of Man must. Did not the Christ have to? Is it just that because it was predicted, it had to be fulfilled? I think it's more. Christ had to suffer and die because God is love. And it is as the rejected, humiliated, crucified son that God most clearly reveals himself as the God of love. In his book, Looking Through the Cross, Graham Tomlin writes, for God himself, in the form of his son, the one who had every right to all power, authority, and glory, to give up his life for the rebellious creation in such a degrading and shameful way is the greatest act of love. But if the cross is in some sense the inevitable consequence of God's nature, 
then so too is the resurrection. Again, Graham Tomlinson says it much better than I can. If Jesus really is the divine Son of God, the resurrection is in fact the obvious thing to have happened to him. If God is ultimately beyond suffering, then death cannot defeat him. God will always win in a battle with death. Life will always triumph. Now, I'm not suggesting that the two on the road grasped all of this, but they did make a response. Look at verses 28 and 29. It seems likely that the stranger Jesus would have gone on walking if they had not urged him strongly, stay with us. They did not want to let him go. Which begs the question for us, how much do we want Jesus? How much do you want Jesus? For we will only truly find him in so far as we immerse ourselves in those very scriptures which all point to him. Jesus will never impose his presence. But he longs for us to dig deep into scripture and entreat him. Reveal yourself more. More, Jesus. I want to see more of you. I want to know more of you. Stay with me. But the choice he leaves to us. So Jesus draws alongside a picture of very human compassion. Jesus is the Christ, divinely fulfilling all of Scripture. And now finally, Jesus is the crucified and risen one. The crucified and risen one. Something very special happens when this stranger joins the two at the table. And as if he were the host and not a guest, verse 30, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. This is the climax to which the whole narrative is pointing. This is the revelation which moved them from eyes prevented to eyes opened. Now, how might this have happened? Well, on one level, we cannot know. We weren't there. But the way Luke writes gives us at least one clue. We find exactly the same sequence of actions in Luke's account of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I quote, taking the five loaves and two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks. He broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples. And then, exactly the same sequence of actions when Jesus shared his final Passover meal. Took, gave thanks, broke, gave. 
This suggests that Jesus had his own unique way of handling the bread, and they recognized him as the same Jesus because he did it the same way as he had done it before. The pre-crucifixion Jesus and the post-resurrection Jesus are one and the same Jesus. And yet, I also believe, though I can't prove it, that when the two saw Jesus breaking the bread to give it to them, they saw the holes left by the nails in his hands. We know, looking ahead to verse 40, that Jesus showed all the disciples his hands and his feet. This could only be Jesus, for only he had the marks of the crucifixion left permanently in his body to prove it. The Jesus they encounter is the crucified and risen Jesus, whose body is both physical enough to break bread, but also different enough to disappear instantly from their sight. And when Jesus reveals himself, the two again make a response. Not only do they quickly share their experience with each other, but they clearly feel compelled to return to Jerusalem at once and share it with all the others. Surely, this is one of the strongest pieces of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, is the transformed lives of those who encountered him, the before of downcast faces, disappointed hopes, the after of hearts burning, and a story, a new story to tell. Well, as I close, I'm going to invite the musicians to come up, and they're going to play some instrumental music, no words. And I invite you in this time to use it to reflect on some truth that God has opened to you this morning to cherish it and to ask Jesus, what response does he want you to make for him? Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? For he is alive. He is here. He is alongside you wanting to hear your voice and to reveal himself as Lord and Christ.